Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Today we're going back to the mid-1700s. In the 1760s, amongst the Ottawa people was a man named Pontiac. He resisted English occupation of the Ohio River Valley and eastern Great Lakes region. At the same time, across the ocean, the King of England was George III. George had inherited the throne in 1760 and reigned until 1820. He was the king who signed the Royal Proclamation of 1763 after defeating French forces in North America. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, the Royal Proclamation, quote, established the basis for governing the North American territories surrendered by France to Britain in the Treaty of Paris 1763 following the Seven Years' War. It introduced policies meant to assimilate the French population to British rule. These policies ultimately failed and were replaced by the Quebec Act of 1774. The Royal Proclamation also set the constitutional structure for the negotiation of treaties with the indigenous inhabitants of large sections of Canada. It is referenced in Section 25 of the Constitution Act 1982. As such, it has been labeled an Indian Magna Carta, or an Indian Bill of Rights. The proclamation also contributed to the outbreak of the American Revolutionary War in 1775. The proclamation legally defined the North American interior west of the Appalachian Mountains as a vast indigenous reserve. This angered people in the 13 colonies who desired western expansion. End quote. What was the effect of these proclamations, policies, and so-called legal definitions upon indigenous peoples such as Pontiac? To be honest, we're still dealing with it. In Canada, this stuff wasn't always taught in schools. I remember in social studies being told that native people were nomadic. It's simply not true. But the notion that indigenous people on Turtle Island were nomadic meant that they had no claim to the land. That's the indoctrination of the legalization of continental land theft. So because of that, there are many, many, many politicians, police, professionals, prognosticators, and plebeians who still don't even know that they live on indigenous land. To put it in other terms, the settlers don't even understand that they live on Indian land and not the other way around. To be even clearer, native people don't live on settlers' land Settlers live on native people's land. The argument against that colonial reality is this. But there was nothing here when Europeans arrived. The argument against that is that that argument is not true. There were pyramids around the Gulf of Mexico. There was star knowledge built into sites in what is now the northeastern United States that required observations of lunar events that occurred only every 16 or 17 years. How do you trace that knowledge and then build it into viewing sites hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, if you are not mentally sophisticated? All of that was replaced by ranches, farms, mines, strip malls, and pollution. Turtle Island was not empty when Europeans arrived. But over time, the layman's narrative of indigenous people is that they didn't use various materials, such as smelted metals, 
and were therefore worthy only of being replaced by settlers. And this is despite the fact that the king made his proclamation almost 260 years ago. And this is despite the fact that the royal proclamation is referenced in Canada's constitution. It is referenced in section 25 of the Constitution Act 1982. I'll read what it says in the Canadian Encyclopedia online. Quote, King George reserved the western lands as exclusive hunting grounds for the several nations or tribes of nations under his protection. As sovereign of the territory, however, the king claimed ultimate dominion over the entire region. He further prohibited any private person from directly buying indigenous lands. Instead, he reserved right of purchase for himself and his heirs alone. The proclamation set out a process whereby an indigenous nation, if they freely chose, could sell their lands to representatives of the British monarch. This could only take place at some public meeting called especially for the purpose. This established the constitutional basis for the future negotiation of indigenous treaties in British North America. It made the British crown an essential agent in the transfer of indigenous lands to colonial settlers. The first systematic attempts to enforce the treaty-making provisions of the Royal Proclamation took place in the regions north of the Great Lakes, which became Upper Canada in 1791. The treaty-making steps that evolved in this Crown Colony were later exported to the territories, Rupert's Land and the Northwestern Territory, purchased by Canada from the Hudson's Bay Company in 1870. Canadian government officials recognized that the indigenous peoples of the newly annexed Western Territory had the same rights as their ancestral lands as Eastern First Nations did to their own. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 11 numbered treaties were negotiated in the Prairie Provinces, Northeastern British Columbia, Northern and Northwestern Ontario, and the Western part of the Northwest Territories. They all followed the principles outlined in the Royal Proclamation of 1763. End quote. Canada got its wealthy start when Britain allowed the province of Canada to become the country of Canada. Canada got its wealth from the Hudson Bay Company, which was financed by a British royal family member back in 1670. It's like money passing from the left hand to the right hand of the same person, and I'm supposed to believe two separate entities are involved. It's a shell game that's been going on for hundreds of years. Britain was making a lot of money in 1763. Not only did they sell the land owned by the Hudson Bay Company to Canada, but they also transferred French territory in North America to Britain. Britain was the king of the hill in 1763 because they had just won the Seven Years' War. In other words, Britain at the time had the power to make these sorts of deals. They had the manpower, the firepower, and the supply chain management to fight a worldwide war. And that was 260 years ago. This is the great one, the ultimate driving machine. And if you don't know what that means, you're excused. But if when you see this car, you're seized with an uncontrollable urge to plant yourself behind the wheel and head for the wide open spaces, then we're talking to you. The great one is an idea on wheels. The idea that there's more to driving than just moving from place to place in isolated indifference. The great one is 400 cubic inches of glistening engine, 
The great one is a superb road handling chassis. The great one is bucket seats, carpeting, and a walnut-styled instrument panel. The great one is Pontiac GTO for 1967. Isn't it time you decided to ride the wide track winning streak? The great one is here. What is known about Pontiac? A book written in 1851, about 90 years after Pontiac's war, described Pontiac in the context of the defeat of France in North America by Britain. The book was written by Francis Parkman, and he introduces Pontiac at a meeting with Major Robert Rogers in the following way. Quote, The day was dull and rainy, and, resolving to rest until the weather should improve, Rogers ordered his men to prepare their encampment in the neighboring forest. Soon after the arrival of the rangers, a party of Indian chiefs and warriors entered the camp. They proclaimed themselves an embassy from Pontiac, ruler of all that country, and directed in his name that the English should advance no farther until they had an interview with the great chief, who was already close at hand. In truth, before the day closed, Pontiac himself appeared, and it is here for the first time that this remarkable man stands forth distinctly on the page of history. He greeted Rogers with the haughty demand. What was his business in that country, and how he dared enter it without his permission? Rogers informed him that the French were defeated, that Canada had surrendered, and that he was on his way to take possession of Detroit and restore a general peace to white men and Indians alike. Pontiac listened with attention, but only replied that he should stand in the path of the English until morning. Having inquired if the strangers were in need of anything which his country could afford, he withdrew with his chiefs at nightfall to his own encampment. While the English, ill at ease and suspecting treachery, stood well on their guard throughout the night. In the morning, Pontiac returned to the camp with his attendant chiefs and made his reply to Roger's speech of the previous day. He was willing, he said, to live at peace with the English and suffer them to remain in his country as long as they treated him with due respect and deference. The Indian chiefs and provincial officers smoked the calumet together and perfect harmony seemed established between them. End quote. It can be seen that the worry of Major Rogers of an attack by Pontiac and his warriors was actually unfounded. Pontiac came looking for peace. Rogers came looking for order, and together they smoked the pipe to seal the deal. From the description of Pontiac meeting Rogers, it can be seen that Pontiac took time to think before responding. The fact that Pontiac had an embassy of warriors and chiefs shows that Pontiac was already able to persuade men to follow him. That leadership ability must have existed in Pontiac during the time of the French occupation of Turtle Island. Indeed, Francis Parkman writes, quote, Up to this time, Pontiac had been, in word and deed, the fast ally of the French. But it is easy to discern the motives that impelled him to renounce his old adherents. The American forest never produced a man more shrewd, politic, and ambitious. Ignorant as he was of what was passing in the world, he could clearly see that the French power was on the wane and he knew his own interest too well to prop a falling cause. By making friends of the English, he hoped to gain powerful allies who would aid his ambitious projects, 
and give him an increased influence over the tribes. And he flattered himself that the newcomers would treat him with the same respect which the French had always observed. In this and all his other expectations of advantage from the English, he was doomed to disappointment. End quote. According to Parkman, that pipe-smoking ceremony between Pontiac and Major Rogers happened in 1760 when Britain took control of French forts near the eastern Great Lakes. And yet what is known as Pontiac's Rebellion occurred in 1763. What happened in those three intermediate years? Unlike other vehicles, car is all about you. And it's what makes a Pontiac a Pontiac, like the Solstice GXP. Control of the forts in the region was transferred from the French to the British after the war, and many indigenous nations in that region had been allied to the French. Francis Parkman writes, quote, The remote nations of the West had also joined in the war, descending in their canoes for hundreds of miles to fight against the enemies of France. All these tribes entertained towards the English that rancorous enmity which an Indian always feels against those to whom he has been opposed in war. Under these circumstances, it behooved the English to use the utmost care in their conduct towards the tribes. But even when the conflict with France was impending, and the alliance with the Indians was of the last importance, they had treated them with indifference and neglect. They were not likely to adopt a different course now that their friendship seemed a matter of no consequence. In truth, the intentions of the English were soon apparent. In the zeal for retrenchment, which prevailed after the close of hostilities, the presents which it had always been customary to give the Indians at stated intervals were either withheld altogether or doled out with a niggardly and reluctant hand, while to make the matter worse, the agents and officers of government often appropriated the presents to themselves and afterwards sold them at an exorbitant price to the Indians. End quote. Those practices have been going on for a long time, even into the 20th century when Canada was signing the so-called numbered treaties with the indigenous nations north of the medicine line. Even the so-called Dakota Wars began as a similar situation as described in the aforementioned quote. Whereas in Pontiac's Rebellion it was against the British, in the Dakota War it was against the Americans. In Pontiac's time, the French had given gifts, including guns and ammunition, to the native people. But when the English took over, they stopped giving gifts. The attitude of the British soldiers towards native people was different from the French attitude towards native people at the forts to which the native peoples had been accustomed to do trade with. Francis Parkman described it in the following way, quote, The English fur trade had never been well regulated, and it was now in a worse condition than ever. Many of the traders, and those in their employ, were ruffians of the coarsest stamp, who vied with each other in rapacity, violence, and profligacy. They cheated, cursed, and plundered the Indians, and outraged their families. Offering, when compared with the French traders who were under better regulation, a most unfavorable example of the character of their nation. The officers and soldiers of the garrisons did their full part in exciting the general resentment. Formerly, when the warriors came to the forts, they had been welcomed by the French with attention and respect. 
The inconvenience which their presence occasioned had been disregarded and their peculiarities overlooked, but now they were received with cold looks and harsh words from the officers, and with oaths, menaces, and sometimes blows from the reckless and brutal soldiers. End quote. Native people weren't allowed to relax or rest at the forts now under British management. If they were caught reclining against the wall, they were, quote, met with muttered ejaculations of impatience or abrupt orders to be gone, enforced perhaps by a touch from the butt of a sentinel's musket. These marks of contempt were unspeakably galling to their haughty spirit. End quote. Why did the English treat the native people that way? It was because the soldiers were commanded to behave that way. There are letters between English officials such as governors, colonels, and generals that attest to the termination of the gift-giving policy of the French. I'll read a footnote from Parkman's book that illustrates the tone of the new English regime in North America. Quote, In January 1768, Colonel Bouquet, commanding in Pennsylvania, writes to General Amherst stating the discontent produced among the Indians by the suppression of presents. The commander-in-chief replies, As to appropriating a particular sum to be laid out yearly to the warriors in presents, etc., that I can by no means agree to, nor can I think it necessary to give them any presents by way of bribes. For if they do not behave properly, they are to be punished. End quote. In the same footnote, there is an excerpt from a letter dated 1763 that strikes the same tone. Basically, the English were going to do business with the natives in a very different way than the French had done. The discontent amongst the indigenous nations in that region was inflamed by the conquered French. Rumors were spread amongst the native people that the English had, quote, formed a deliberate scheme to root out the whole Indian race and with that design had already begun to hem them in with settlements on the one hand and a chain of forts on the other. End quote. By 1761, the indigenous people were already feeling the squeeze of the new English policies. As Parkman shows in another footnote, quote, At a conference at Philadelphia in August 1761, an Iroquois sachem said, we, your brethren of the several nations, are penned up like hogs. There are forts all around us, and therefore we are apprehensive that death is coming upon us. End quote. That person said that 60 years before the Indian Removal Act was enacted in the United States. I think he knew what was coming. Pontiac must have also seen what was coming for him, his people and all peoples who looked like him. It's so powerful, it's almost scary. Boo. The muscle car lives. The new Firebird Trans Am by Pontiac. So who was Pontiac and what did he do? Wikipedia says the following, quote, Contemporaneous documents reveal little about Pontiac before 1763. 
He was probably born between 1712 and 1725, perhaps at an Ottawa village on the Detroit or Maumee River. Other sources state that he may have been born in Defiance, Ohio. A park at the confluence of the Maumee and Oglaze Rivers in Defiance is named Pontiac Park and identified as his birthplace. End quote. Pontiac was an Ottawa person. Some traditions say that his father was Ottawa and his mother Chippewa. Other sources say one of his parents was Miami or that he was a Catawba child taken prisoner and raised in an Ottawa family. The same Wikipedia entry states, quote, By 1747, Pontiac had become a war leader among the Ottawa when he allied with New France against a resistance movement led by Nicolas Orontony, a Huron leader. Nicholas had also allowed the English to build a trading post, Fort Sandusky, in 1745 near Sandusky Bay in Ohio country. Pontiac continued to support the French during the French and Indian War, 1754-1763, against British colonists and their allied Native Americans. End quote. Another fort in Sandusky Bay was built in 1761, under order by General Jeffrey Amherst. Amherst was the man who wanted Native people to be punished if they didn't behave properly under the English regime that had defeated the French. That's when Indigenous leaders began calls to rally together to drive out the British and revive the French and Indian alliance. In 1762, on the shores of the Detroit River, some Indigenous leaders were making a call to arms. Pontiac may have been present at that council because on May 7, 1763, he and 300 followers tried to overtake Fort Detroit. The direct capture of the fort failed, so Pontiac and his followers laid siege to the fort, eventually destroying it. Meanwhile, word spread of Pontiac's attack and nearby Native people attacked British forts and Anglo-American settlements. They didn't attack French sites, however. On July 25, 1766, at Fort Ontario in Oswego, New York, Pontiac met with the British Superintendent of Indian Affairs, Sir William Johnson. A peace treaty was signed at that meeting, ending Pontiac's war. In 1769, Pontiac was assassinated by a Peoria warrior. The Peoria warrior was enacting vengeance for a killing Pontiac had conducted years earlier. After the war, the British increased their presence in the area, which was opposite to what people like Pontiac had originally wanted. They had wanted to stop English settlement, but failed to do so. The rest of us Injuns have been suffering punishment for their actions ever since. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.